one of my favorite authors in terms of the dynamics of spiritual life is a guy named David Simans. And he has an interesting resume. He was raised as a missionary, uh, and then he was trained as a pastor, but then practiced mostly as a pastoral counselor. And the reason I like him is because he has that sensitivity of a pastor, and his, in, but the training and background and skill of a counselor and all that experience, and he's able to convey a lot of that in his writing. So he's written a couple books, Putting Away Childish Things is the one I'm going to be quoting from. Uh, another one that's probably even more helpful for many of us is Healing for Damaged Emotions. That's a really good book. Anyway, in this chapter, or in this book, there's a chapter, chapter 3, which I'd like to use to introduce our sermon today. And listen to the title of this chapter. A Childhood Motto Which Destroys Adults. A Childhood Motto Which Destroys Adults. So what motto, and this is a man who's counseled thousands, maybe tens of thousands of adults, and mainly Christians as they're working through issues in their spiritual life and their Christian walk and their relationships. What motto is it that he would say, this is the model, the childhood motto, which destroys adults? Well, let me quote him as he introduces this chapter. He writes, a few years ago, I attended a Holy Spirit conference in Michigan. One day, a pastor named Brad shared with us that for many years, he had been a struggling, up-and-down Christian. Outwardly, he was a very successful pastor with a record of considerable accomplishment. But inwardly, he was like a yo-yo, bouncing between spiritual highs and lows, or like a billiard ball, battling, batting from one side to the other, hitting pride on one side and condemnation, guilt, and depression on the other. Brad told us, a couple years ago, there came to me a flash of insight from the Holy Spirit. I suddenly realized that my life was not really being ruled by love for God and for other people, Instead, for the past 49 years, a little childhood motto instilled in me by my parents had been ruining my life. All these years, I thought Christ controlled my life until I became aware that it was a motto I had adopted in my early years. And uh, the author goes on. What was this powerful childhood motto? Quote, measure up. Measure up. Brad continued, I am sure my parents didn't mean to give me that impression, but what I heard them saying was, sure, we love you, but we would love you even more if you would only measure up. Wow. You know, many of us could probably say, if we were honest, in our own life, in the, in the back of our mind, we wonder if God's not saying that to us in some way. Hey, I love you. I've died on the cross for you, but I'd love you a little bit more if you measured up. If you just got things a little bit better, if you got rid of the sin a little bit more, if you read your Bible more, if you gave more, if you showed more love, if you witnessed more, if you just measured up, man, we'd have this much better relationship going on. Well, that's the background with which I want to dive into the passage in your bulletin, because we're going to see the only way I know of to undo the damage of that emotion within us, of that motto within us, and that is to look at Jesus as our great high priest. And as we flesh that out together, I think we'll see how that applies. So let's begin with prayer. 
Father, there is not one person here who is not free from the accusations of the evil one, the accuser, that's literally his name, that we do not measure up, that we fail or are failures. For some of us, that's very self-conscious. It's in the front of our minds, and others, it's, it's more self-conscious. It's there, even though we try to, to hide it in many ways, even though we try to make up for it by working and our accomplishments. Help us. Help us to see beyond the manger and simply the little child there to see you, Jesus. To see you, as we talked last week, as the great prophet of God, the one who shows us what God is like and his message to mankind. And help us to see today you as our high priest. Not just the high priest, but our high priest. The one who gives himself because we don't measure up for the punishment of our sins. Thank you, Father. Lord, please guide my words. Please guide my words and please guide our hearts as we receive this. Thank you. Amen. All right, our text today. Becky, can you restart that, please? Thank you. It's going to be here in your bulletin. It's in the last few verses of Hebrews chapter 4 and then gliding into chapter 5. And remember, the author of Hebrews, or none of the New Testament writers, were using uh, verse and chapter divisions. Okay, we added those later on for our own convenience. Okay. Well, go ahead and change it if you would, please. We'll just do it that way. We've had to adjust some uh, technical equipment to make the live stream better, so that's kind of interfering with a few things. All right. In your bulletin, you have it here. And what does the Word of God say to us this morning? Therefore, and by the way, we're, I'm going to be reading this with the plural pronouns, but I think it would be great if you substitute your individual pronoun. So instead of, therefore, since we, you might say, okay, since I have a great high priest. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Thank God, literally. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men, and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. That is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of his own people. All right. Jesus, our great high priest. Let's talk about this here. First of all, this idea of priesthood may not be very uh, familiar to us, so we're going to explore what, is, what exactly does it mean that Jesus is our priest? How is that different than being a prophet? And it may be also clouded in our minds because, hey, let's see if this works. No, it does not. Okay. It may be kind of clouded in our mind also because usually our conception of a priest, we're thinking of a Roman Catholic priest or maybe, you know, an Eastern Orthodox priest. 
But of course, the background to this is not Catholicism or anything like that. The background is the priestly system of the Old Testament. And you're going to find this especially in the book of Leviticus. We're not going to read the whole book of Leviticus, uh, but instead we're just going to do like the author of Hebrews and talk about the, the salient parts here. So what is a priest? Well, first of all, a priest is a representative. A priest is a representative. Did you see that here in the first part of, of Hebrews 5? Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices to the Lord. So a priest is someone who is a way that you are represented before God. And the idea being that there is a vast difference between yourself and God. And there are some things in between you, some things that have happened, we call those sin, that hinder this relationship. So there's a representative. So Jesus, as a prophet, like we talked about last week, in that sense, he represented God to man because he, he was the mouth of God. He showed what God was teaching and what they wanted them to know. But here, as a priest, he represents men before God. So a prophet represents God before man, and as a priest, you have it reversed. We, he represents men before God. And they said that's why he had to be selected among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God. Now, how does he do that? Well, he tells us here, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So the primary role of a priest, this wasn't the only thing he did, but what made him a priest, the heart of it was this. He offers sacrifices for your sins. So if you were living in the time of, the, of this priesthood in the Old Testament, and, and you... Um, you knew, you became conscious of something between you and God, something you had done. You didn't just come to God in confession. You didn't just offer a sacrifice on your own. You would offer it. You would come and you would bring it to the priest. And the priest would represent you before God. Why? Because they had been set apart by God for the special role. They had been trained. There was a certain amount of relative holiness that they had, were supposed to inhabit. And therefore, they would offer that to God. They would offer your gift before God. Now, in that role then, in that role, we see Jesus, don't we? And we're not going to read the whole thing, but the whole middle part of Hebrews, all the way from chapter 4 to all the way up to chapter 10, is about how Jesus has done exactly that for you and for I. Listen, we have a sin problem. We have a sin problem. And the heart of that sin problem is not the bad results it brings in our life, although it does bring that. The heart of my sin problem and the heart of your sin problem is that it perverts and destroys and cuts off the relationship that we are intended to have with God. You see this beautiful keyboard right here. You know, that, that keyboard, it has, does some incredible things. And uh, I, I love when Nate's up here playing that thing. And there, there are a lot of things it can do that he doesn't bring out because it would be more distracting. But, I mean, it can make organ sounds. It can do all kinds of things. And you know what it can't do? It can't do anything unless it's plugged in. Because unless it has that connection, unless it has that connection to its power, it, it basically is a big paperweight, you know? And in the same way, the deepest need of humanity's heart, of my heart and yours, the deepest need that we all have is this connection with God. 
the, the, the severing of that, the poisoning of that, is what has led to everything else that is wrong with us individually as well as through, that, through society. And that's what Jesus does. He represents us before God by dealing with our sin problem. And later on in Hebrews, it talks in Hebrews 7, I believe it is, the, the priests of the Old Testament, they would bring offerings for their own sin, but then for the sin of the people. But Jesus wasn't like that. He had no sin of his own, and yet he brought an offering for our sin. And what was that offering? It was himself. He is both the one offering as well as the, the, the gift offered. By his death upon the cross, he is able to make us clean before God if we are placing our trust in his sacrifice and nothing about our own good works or merits. So he represents before God. And the second thing he does is he is, oh, there we go. Um, the second thing he does is he mediates between mankind and God, therefore. Because he is able to represent humans before God, he is therefore able to be our mediator. So uh, I don't really do this role too often, but sometimes pastors, usually counselors, are sometimes called to be in mediation between two people, maybe a married couple, you know, they're really at its throat, each other's throat. And there's so much history there, so much water under the bridge, that they need someone else to step in and say, okay, let me, as it were, take your hand and mediate your conflict and see if we can get over this. That's the idea of mediation, right? And that's what Jesus is doing. He is a high priest because in this role, as a representative offering himself, he mediates the sin conflict between us and God. In fact, the, the Paul in the book of, uh, book of Romans says that we are, are, have been enemies of God because of our sin. So there has to be something done to, to mediate that. Now, I love this verse here. This is also from Paul in 1 Timothy 1. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and mankind. Now, if you've been around here for a while, listen to me, you know, it's not my style to condemn other churches and beliefs. Uh, God is way bigger than our church and uh, in our belief system, and, and I think we'll be surprised by a lot of things. But you know one thing that's really important to me, and I think should be important to us, there aren't any priests anymore. Because a priest is a mediator, and there's one mediator between God and man. There's no more sacrifice for a priest to offer for sin because the sacrifice has already been given. Jesus is the final priest. There's one mediator. I'm not him, okay? I'm not even a prophet. I'm just a pastor. I'm not speaking words of God directly. I'm not a priest. I don't represent you before God. We are all equal before the throne of Jesus Christ and before the cross of Jesus Christ. We're all equal. There's one mediator. None of us are him. It's Jesus himself. Now, I love this because also we're told in this, in Romans 8, part of the way he does that is not only what he did, but what he's doing. In Romans 8, he tells us after, you know, this is a great chapter, describing all that God has done. He says, therefore, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justified. Who is it that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Wow. Jesus never left his role as high priest. 
He never left that. He is still interceding for you and for myself. We need this. Otherwise, he wouldn't be doing it. We need an inter- intermediary, a mediator between us and God, someone who intercedes for us. And that person is Jesus Christ in him alone. So this is the role of the priest and how Jesus is the high priest. Now, I want to transition to the second part of the sermon then. All right, what should we do because of that? What does it mean to us that Jesus is our high priest? And I, you can follow along here in the notes if you want to I'll follow this for the most part. Here's three things I want to bring out. Three things I want to bring out because Jesus is our high priest. That means something to you and to me. First, because Jesus is our high priest, we have, we have a way to be with God, our creator and father. That connection we have with the person who created us, the only one who knows what our life is to be about, that can be restored, and it is open to us. Let's go back to uh, this passage here that we were looking at. I don't still have any issues. Can you uh, advance that, just, just one? There we go. All right, thanks. All right, what does he say? Therefore, since we have a great high priest, one who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we, we possess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, so we may receive grace and help in our time of need. All right. We have a way to be with God. Number one, how, how, what does that look like? Well, first of all, he can handle our guilt problem. And we've talked about that already. Our, our guilt problem is the first thing that keeps us not only from God, but then because of that, our true human nature. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3? Adam and Eve had sinned, and God had warned them that there was a result. They would die. Now, did they die that day? No, that wasn't the point. The point was like, they, like a branch cut from a tree Death was then inevitable at that part and was going to be progressively working through. And the heart of that then, the reason for that, is because they had lost their close connection with God. Whereas in chapter 2, or earlier it said that they were walking with God in the cool of the evening. What What a beautiful phrase. Now it says they were expelled east of Eden. And there was a flaming cherubim, or sorry, a cherubim, a high angel with a flaming sword guarding the way, indicating that the way to God was not open now because of human sin. He can handle our guilt, as we talked about, because he himself took upon himself on the cross our guilt before God. Second, and this is um, where we start to come back to our original part, where we talked about that childhood motto. Second, he can handle our guilt feelings. You see, the guilt already dealt with. What keeps me and you from drawing closer to God is not that we are guilty before God. We are not. Romans 12.1, or 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's, it's just not there. Everything has been taken care of. But I don't feel it always. There is a, a guilt feeling. Do you remember in Genesis 3 what happened? Not only was there something on God's side, their sin, 
but there were guilt feelings on their side. And it says the first thing they did, Adam and Eve, they hid themselves before God. And we're still hiding ourselves from God. Why? Because though he has dealt with the guilt objectively, subjectively we still feel guilty. There are guilt feelings within us. So we do this internally. And what does it tell us here? We have a high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, and going through the heavens, he's going to later explain, he means the temple, fulfilling all the prophecies and taking care of our guilt problem. And then he says, let us hold firmly, for we don't have a priest who is unable to sympathize, empathize, understand our weaknesses. He was made just like us in every way. See, sometimes we know that there's such a great gap between ourselves and God. We're, we're ashamed. There's fear. We'll come to that here. And we re- need this reminder that we have a high priest who understands what it's like to be human. Psalm 103, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Why? Because as a father has compassion on his children, the Lord has compassion on us, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. We have a God who understands what it's like to be human. That's an amazing statement and an amazing thought. And then finally, very much related to this, he can handle our guilt and our guilt feelings and he can overcome our fears because of this. See, our fears are, if, if I come as a sinful human before God, it's going to destroy me. And not only because of my guilt feelings, but because I can never measure up. Subconsciously, there's this idea that I need to be afraid of God in this way, sometimes at least. Do you remember in Luke chapter 5? Well, I think I've got it up here. Let's see here. There's this wonderful passage where Jesus has gone out to teach the people. He got into uh, one of the boats that was on the shore of the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Lake Tiberias. And uh, he's sits in the boat a little ways from shore, teaches the people, and then he looks at Peter, whose boat it was, and he says, "Uh, hey, Peter, go let your net out. And and Peter's like, we've been fishing all night. And he didn't say this. He was smart enough not to say that, but he's probably thinking, and by the way, Jesus, we're the professional fishermen here, okay? You're the teacher guy, but we're the fisherman guy, and we're not going to catch any any fish right now this time of day. He says, no, okay. But since you say it, and he goes and they catch this miraculous amount of fish. And he knows it's a miracle. And and Peter comes to Jesus and he says, depart from me. Get out of here. Because I am a sinful man. Interesting. Peter gets a lot of things wrong, doesn't he? But his instincts are right. While everyone else is counting the fish, he's looking at this guy who caused it and saying, okay, I don't like this dynamic right now. <laughs> because I'm getting the sense that I'm not in control of this situation at all. And if I'm in control of my life, as long as you're here with me, you need to go because you don't know how deep this sin goes. But he does. And Jesus responds, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Let's go a little bit deeper. We have a way to be with God, our Creator. And because of what Jesus has done as the high priest, God is now dealing with us fully through grace. God is now dealing with us fully through grace. 
Grace simply means the free gift of God in which he deals with us and gives us and blesses us according to what we need and not at all, not at all, not one smidgen on what we have deserved or lived up to that particular week. The idea that we earn something before God, that we can earn his blessing, that we can earn anything about his love is totally contrary. It's totally uh, opposed by the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. This is all gift. There's not one smidgen of wage within this. It is all by grace. Remember that phrase we've started with? Sure, I loved you, but I would love you more if you measured up. That is not from God. That is not from God. That is this childhood motto that we need to, to measure up because we don't fully believe that we're dealing in this realm of grace. But we are. That's what the high priest is about. Because you and I have a high priest, you don't have to ever measure up. You can get everything wrong today. You can get everything wrong this week. You can be a total failure in your own eyes, and it will not change one smidgen the directory of your life in its most important parts. The part of you before God. There is a... This time of year, (laughs) there's another can I say religious figure on the scene, Um, named Santa? Obviously, there's a historical way to refer him as a religious figure because he was actually a saint, but like everything, our culture has morphed that historical persona almost to the point of non-recognition. And what's the most important thing about Santa? What do we tell our kids? What do we teach them in the songs? What? He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Number one, he's watching you. And number two, he's keeping a list, all right? And you are going to be rewarded on whether you've been a good boy or a bad boy or a good girl or a bad girl. Now, this is childhood, but it's a childhood motto that seeps into our adult life, and even into our relationship with God. Not because of that. That's just an illustration. But that idea that God's watching me, so I better be good. No! God's watching you with care, like a loving father, not like a condemning judge. The judgment part has all been dealt with through our priest at the cross. And now we can embrace him as our high priest and understand that because of what he has done, we live in grace. I want to share just a couple of quotes just here as we begin to kind of wrap them, him up, wrap this up. As we come into this last part, instead of the slow fade, we could practice the bold approach. Instead of the slow fade. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, the, the writer of Hebrews, if you read the whole thing, he's really concerned that the people he's writing to, they're, they're young Christians, and they're starting to fall away. A lot of them because they've been persecuted, some because of false doctrine that Jesus is just, you know, this, this high angel, he's not really the center of everything. And, and, and he, he makes this point of, of showing all the reasons we should stay in the faith. And so that's why he warns, he says, don't, don't lose this. Come to him. In fact, he says, I want you, instead of that, I want you to remember that we can approach the throne of grace 
throne of grace. Boy, that's a phrase we could let slip out of our minds without understanding, right? How do we think of God? What's the nature of his throne? Throne of righteousness, throne of holiness, throne of justice, throne of power, throne of wisdom. Yes, 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 all those things. But first, and foremost towards us, it should be a throne of grace. When he sits on a throne before us, and that throne has a name that we should embrace, it's this, grace. Why? And then he says, so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I like what uh, this man, who's a priest, um, Anglican priest, so we'll give him a little bit of a break on that part. Um, and he wrote this, however much we hate the law, we are more afraid of grace. Now, what, what did he mean by that? Well, what he meant by that was there's something very comforting about viewing ourselves as this system of, of karma, basically, the law, that we're supposed to do certain things, and if we do, we get good results. If we don't, we get bad results, and that applies to us and everybody else. There's a certain comfort, he says, in that. We don't like it, but it's better than this idea that the things that we do that we're so proud of don't really matter that much, because ultimately, what matters is what is done for us, not what we do. What does he say here? I like these words. What's it mean to live in this grace, to come to him boldly? Trust him. And when you have done that, you are living a life of grace. No matter what happens to you in the course of that trusting, no matter how many waverings you have, no matter how, many, how much heaviness and sadness your lapses, vices, indispositions, and bratty whining may cause you, you, be, you believe simply that somebody else, by his death and resurrection, has made it all right. And you just say thank you and shut up. The whole slop closet full of mildewed performances, which is all you have to offer, is simply your death. It is Jesus who is your life. If he refused to condemn you because your works were rotten, he certainly isn't going to flunk you out because your faith isn't so hot. You can fail utterly, therefore, and still live the life of grace. Because at your very worst, all you can be is dead. And for him who is the resurrection and the life, that makes you just his cup of tea. Trust him. It's all about him. One more quote from him. We are uneasy with grace because it is all too obviously dangerous. It threatens to blow apart the imagined framework by which we hold ourselves, however inconveniently, in one piece. As long as the law is upon us, we feel safe. Its bitching, score-evening presence assures us that something out there has our number. Whether it approves or disapproves of us is almost a matter of indifference. The main thing is that having our number, it absolves us from the burden of learning our name. The law of retribution reigns supreme in our fantasies precisely to keep us off the main question of our lives. What would you do with freedom if you had it? Now what's he getting at? What he's getting at is this. We are called to live in the perfect freedom of grace. But we don't. Because in our minds, we're afraid of failure. In our minds, we're comparing ourselves with other people. In our minds, we're, we're judging whether we've been good enough and whether we can do the things that our heart is pulling us towards. And it's, it's only when we, we understand 
that we have a high priest who has already taken care of our failures. That we have the ability to fully live out this life of grace. What if I fail? You will. That's okay. Our failures are not final. And, and the, even the world gets this to some degree, right? They say, well, fail, because then you'll learn from your failure. Fail even if you don't learn, okay? Because the point of, the, of your life now is not to become a better person, not to achieve more and fail less. No. It's simply to receive, to say thank you, and shut up. And then maybe one more thing. Out of that, to simply embrace what God is pulling your heart into that makes a difference in the world. Even if you're not very good at it or you're afraid you won't be, to live in that kind of grace. Well, I have one more illustration, but it's a long one, so I think I'll refrain. (laughs) You want it? All right, fine. I'm going to end with this story then. It's by a, a woman, Christian woman, who's writing about a story that happened appropriate, appropriately, appropriately enough uh, at Christmas time. She writes, We were the only family with children in the restaurant. I sat Eric in a high chair and noticed that everyone was quietly eating and talking. Suddenly, Eric squealed with glee and said, Hi there. He pointed his fat baby hands He pounded his fat baby hands on the high chair. His eyes were wide with excitement and his mouth was bared in a toothless grin. He wiggled and giggled with merriment. I looked around and saw the source of his merriment. It was a man with a tattered rag of a coat, dirty and greasy and worn out. His pants were baggy with a zipper at half-mast and his toes poked out of his would-be shoes. His shirt was dirty, his hair encombed and unwashed. His whiskers were too short to be called a beard, and his nose was so varicose, varicose it looked like a road map. We were too far from him to smell, but I was sure he smelled. His hands waved and flapped on loose wrists. Hi there, baby. Hi there, big boy. I see you, buster, he said to Eric. My husband and I exchanged looks. What do we do? Eric continued to laugh and to answer, Hi there, hi there. Everyone in the restaurant noticed and looked at us and then at the man. The old geezer was creating a nuisance with, his, with my beautiful baby. Our meal came, the man began shouting from across the room, do you know patty cake? Do you know peekaboo? Hey, look, he knows peekaboo. Nobody thought the old man was cute. He was obviously drunk. My husband and I were embarrassed. We ate in silence, all except for Eric, who was running through his whole repertoire for the self-admiring skid row bum or for the admiring Skid Row bum, who in return reciprocated with his own cute comments. We finally got through the meal and headed for the door. My husband went to, pay, went to pay the check and told me to meet him in the parking lot. The old man sat poised between me and the door. Lord, I prayed, just get me out of here before he speaks to Eric. As I drew closer to the man, I turned my back trying to sidestep him and avoid any ear he might be breathing. As I did, Eric leaned over my arm, reaching with both arms in a baby's pick-me-up position, and before I could stop him, Eric had propelled himself from my arms to the man's. Suddenly, a very smelly old man and a very young baby consummated their love relationship. Eric, in an act of total trust, love, and submission, lays his tiny head 
on the man's ragged shoulders. The man's eyes closed, and I saw tears hover beneath his lashes. His aged hands, full of grime and pain and hard labor, gently, so gently, cradled my baby's bottom and stroked his back. No two beings had ever loved each other so deeply for such a short time. I stood awestruck. The old man rocked and cradled Eric in his arms for a moment, and then his eyes opened and set squarely on mine. And he said in a firm, commanding voice, You take care of this baby. Somehow I managed, I will, from a throat that could contain a stone. And he pried Eric from his chest, unwillingly, longingly, as though he were in pain. And I received my baby, and the man said, God bless you, ma'am. You've given me my Christmas gift. I said nothing more than a muttered thanks. With Eric in my arms, I ran for the car. My husband was wondering why I was crying and holding Eric so tightly, and why I was saying, my God, my God, forgive me. I had just witnessed Christ's love, shown through the innocence of a tiny child who saw no sin, who made no judgment, a child who saw a soul, and a mother who saw a suit of clothes. I was a Christian who was blind, holding a child who was not. I felt God asking, are you willing to share your son for a moment when he shared his for all eternity? The old man, ragged, had unwittingly reminded me to enter the kingdom of God. We must become as little children. I love that picture of grace. Because when God looks at us, all the categories of achievement, all the categories of how we look, all the categories of what this world values mean nothing. That's grace. Vic is going to come and sing a song. It's called, O Come All Ye Unfaithful. As we were putting this in the order of sermon, Kim came up to me, is this a typo? Um, shouldn't this be, O Come All Ye Faithful? Uh, no, no, it's the way it's supposed to go. Because this song reminds us that Jesus came for the broken and the suffering and the struggling and really, if we have eyes to see, that's each one of us. <laughs>